Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Hi, Foibles listeners. Welcome to part four of the career and life of Preston Sturges, the film director in Hollywood in the 1940s. Okay, we're kind of just going to kind of pick up where we've left off. We're not going to recap too much, except there is going to be sort of a little bit of a recap because when we left off, we had talked about The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which was a huge hit for Sturgis in 1944. He had been having a lot of controversy and difficulty with the producer at the studio, even though he was a pretty successful guy. I'm going to get into the kernel of that Disagreement. I mean, I think the colonel was just that they didn't they didn't get along. Sturgis was extremely arrogant and real artistic kind of temperament, a kind of that stereotypical artistic temperament. But this guy was really kind of a bean counter. So they just really didn't communicate and probably really didn't try. So 1944, Preston Sturgis has four movies come out. We talked about one, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. That was the first one that was, was released. But it was not the first one that was filmed. And this is kind of the controversy on which hung the anger and the and the friction between the two is that Sturgis wanted to do a serious film about the doctor who discovered how to use ether to re- alleviate pain for, well, for everything, but in his case, it was dentistry. And... This film was had Sturgis's heart involved. He so wanted to do it, and this is an old story that he wrote way back, and had done in various you know various ways um, through the through time. And he kept he tried to get it done as a play in the '30s. He brought it to the studios. It just kept being rejected. Nobody wanted to do it. And now that he was really successful, he was successful for comedies. And he wanted to do a serious piece, and they didn't want to do it. Plus, they didn't want to do the story. Because basically, this was about a guy who had everything, pretty much. I mean, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He became a fairly successful dentist. Could have been very successful. He discovered this ether. He didn't patent it because he didn't want to do in any way limit its accessibility for the easing of human pain. So, quite a philanthropist. And then what happened was, is the government would say, well, you know, we want to give you $100,000 as a reward for having figured out how to create painless surgery and so forth. And then other people popped up and said, no, it wasn't him, it was me. No, it wasn't him, it was me. He was advised that he should go to court and try to patent it. And that through that process, it would prove that he was the person who did develop it first. He didn't discover either, but he's the one who developed the method. And what happened is... He basically was canceled. Yeah, he he became vilified by the press and all these people that came out and said, no, he stole my idea or what have you. Not only that, you dog, you selfish bastard, you are trying to make money on the back of people suffering. Right. Which is so sad because it's exactly the opposite (laughs) of what his intention was. And so then he ended up committing suicide. Wow. That doesn't happen in the movie. But one of the reasons the studio didn't want to do it because it was a downer. And the other reason they want, didn't want to do it is that Preston Sturgis wrote this movie called The Power and the Glory that got made. That got good reviews in New York, but totally bombed. And it was about a guy like his wife's grandfather, C.W. Post, 
who became one of the richest men in the entire world. He achieved everything he wanted to achieve, and he ended up killing himself. And this is something that Sturgis really was fascinated by, this theme of, of that material good and worldly success does not create happiness. And so he saw that in this story as well. And he did have some comedic bits in it, which again created uh, what the studio felt was a tonal dissonance, and they didn't like it either. So he fought and he fought and he fought. He was so angry about this, uh, because, but he got the okay to film. The film stars Joel McRae, who had been in his last hits, and he was going forward, and when the studio saw the film, they hated it. They, uh, they wanted to re-edit it. They did re-edit it. Um, they didn't understand he was doing a chronological shift thing. And I've seen it in other films, too. I think, though, what it was is in his original film, he ran it backwards. Mm. So it wasn't just a bookend. Oh, we see the end. He died. They're sad. Oh, we see the beginning. He actually kind of did it in reverse. So all the terrible things happen. He's beat up. And then in the end, it's his triumph. So he actually ends with, he says, well, why don't, why don't we want to end with the happy part, you know? Yeah. And, but it didn't make sense to anybody because they hadn't seen anything like that before. So they re-edited it so that, yeah, there was a bookend showing that he had died. But then they start at the beginning after that, and it goes forward. And that had been more of a common way to do those. I've seen a lot of films like that. Yeah, where it starts out and everyone's like, oh, we're so sad he's dead. Remem- I remember, blah, blah, blah. And then they go back, yeah. Right. And so basically, uh, he filmed the great, it was called The Great Moment. And it was filmed before Miracle at Morgan's Creek and before Hail the Conquering Hero. But they didn't want to release it. They said, well, do these other ones first. Basically, he was under contract. And he had to make three more movies. So, you know, he had to do it anyway. But they just didn't, they didn't want to release it. They hated it. Who knows what all that was going on. They did recut it to sort of emphasize the comedy, although it still had pretty downer stuff in it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. We, we didn't even finish watching it, honestly. We, yeah. we watched maybe 30 minutes, and we were like, this does suck. So we turned it off. Right. So essentially, uh, he then went made Morgan's Creek, and that was a huge hit. But it didn't matter. They weren't going to let him, you know, touch this movie. They just wouldn't let him. So then he did Hail the Conquering Hero. And we met, as we mentioned before, this, you can also see the reference in the Coen brothers to this film with their Hail Caesar, a film they made about Hollywood which is very clever. And Hail the Conquering Hero, also released in 1944. It really was a small picture. It was a pretty tight ensemble, and it was filmed on the same set as The Miracle at Morgan's Creek. Right, another small town. Another small town, a kind of a homogenous kind of small town, and it saved a lot of money that way. And it was basically, it's basically a film about stolen valor. Eddie Bracken stars again, as we talked about him last time, how we don't find him very attractive. Yeah, he's like the kind of like goofy, weedy guy. Um, he's not that bad in this one because he's not trying to upstage Betty Hutton. He right. actually, and, 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 and Sturgis put him in this film because in The Miracle at Morgan's Creek, he told him, oh, you're not going to be second to Betty Hutton. You're not, you'll be, you'll be front and center, and he wasn't. So this time he actually wrote the film for him, and he is the star of it. It reiterates the themes of uh, not being able to get into the army. (laughs) Right. He's 4F. He can't get in. He wants to get in. He's trying to get in. He does everything to get in. His father is a huge war hero from World War I, who died in World War I. And he uh, worked, so he does work at it like a, I forget what, in a a government office, basically helping the war effort, but not in the army. And he ends up uh, meeting 
uh, a, a, a sergeant played by William Demarest, who we've talked about at length before, who uh, served with his father. And so he's like, oh, buddy, and all this. And he goes, oh, well, you know, we'll help you. We'll... He buys them all around of drinks, and so they're like, this is a good guy. Yeah, right. And there's a pl- the whole platoon is there, or right. whatever. So- I don't know if platoon is the correct word. but anyway. Group. Yeah, I don't know what they are. But basically, the thing is, is he uh, he didn't have the heart to tell his mother that he couldn't get into the Army because of the way his father had been sacrificed to the war. So he'd been telling her that he was in the Army, and he'd been having letters sent from various areas saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm here, I'm there, I'm fighting, I'm okay, and all this. So she thinks he's in the Army. So he doesn't. So he hasn't been able to go home because he's not in the Army. And so they say, well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll help you. So they get him a, a uniform, and they go, all you have to do is just sneak it, you know, just go into town real quietly. No, there's, this is, okay, oh, there's our favorite, me. there's our favorite guy, our favorite soldier. Oh, okay, we're talking and, about him, all right. And, and Eddie Bracken's like, I can't go home, my mother, and this guy's like, you have to go home to your mother, like, he, she's your mother. He's got a mother fixation, it's really <laughs> hilarious. It's kind of like a guy who was um, a, uh, what was he? He was a... Um, the actor, yeah. The, the actor that plays this guy was a, a world-class, I think, boxer. Uh, boxer. Yeah. He was, a, he was a, 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 a boxer and everything, so he was now getting into acting. And he's not a good actor, but he is a cute character in this. He's like, your mother. You know, he's, he's, he's just like... And then when he meets her mother, he's all like, oh, yeah. mother. <laughs> he's always following her around and being like, apologize to your mother. Yeah. Like, Say you th- thank you to your mother. Yeah, and, do what your mother says. <laughs> It's really and, like holding her hand or patting her. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Looking at her whenever she's upset and patting her hand. So basically, all the soldiers decide like you have to go home, and we're gonna make you. And so they get him a uniform, and they're like, well, we're gonna see you home. And so they take him home. But they say you'll just go in and you'll say hi to your mom, and you know, spend a day, and then you'll leave, and nobody will be the wiser. Well, of course, he tells his mom he's coming, and she tells everybody else, and there, and the entire town turns out. Uh, and with all the character actors and the stock players we've seen before, uh, and he so he's there with his army buddies, so called, and everyone is like, "Oh, he's a hero because he's wearing a purple heart or something on his." His army buddies talked him up over the phone and told her right. what, how amazing he was, and he was injured in the line of duty, so he right. has to come home. And so he's wearing somebody else's purple heart, and he comes home, and now he's now he's caught in it because they're all like they think he's a big hero. And he finds out that his lady love, who's played by Ella Raines, who's not an actress I really care for very much. I think she's, I don't think she's much, she's pretty, but that's about it. Anyway, the studio is trying to promote her, uh, her, again, her career. So she gets stuck in this movie. Her part is nothing. It's a nothing burger part. She's just there going, oh, well, she's engaged to someone else. But yeah. She still loves him and... She only let him break it off because, you know, it was for his own good or whatever. Well, he insisted. Anyway, she's engaged to this other tall, handsome guy who isn't a good actor either. They end up reconnecting, but all kinds of complications ensue. And in the end, it comes out that he's not in the army, but that he wanted to be. And he has a couple of very uh, touching speeches about valor and so forth. It's mixed up with another theme of Sturgis's, which is an election in the town. Right. They want him to be elected. And I don't know. It was okay. Despite the situation being a very good setup for, like, a comedy of errors and everything, it's really... This one is kind of shrill. Yeah. There's so much yelling, so much, like, overblown. 
people falling Acting, down and yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah and just so yelling noisy. and hair pulling and pulling their own hair yeah. out of frustration, talking over each other, stuff like that. So yeah, this really wasn't uh, high on our movies list. If you're really doing Sturgis, it's probably one you should watch because it was, I think, one of his more success. It's not terrible. Um, I mean, it's not like yeah. some of the ones he did at the end of his life. And I think, you know, it probably resonated with people more at the time because it was still during the war, 1944. People probably were drawn to it. And this... Preston Sturgis also got uh, nominated for screenwriter uh, Oscar for this one. Wow. So he was nominated for two different movies in the same year. For uh, Miracle at Morgan's Creek and for Halo Lee yeah. Hero. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> And he didn't win. How could he not win? <laughs> he had two chances there, but no. Okay, but anyway, he, he did get nominated. What did win that year? The original screenplay for Wilson. Uh, we all remember that. It was the Lincoln of its day. It's about Woodrow Wilson, who was the president during World War One. So, I don't know. It, so, World War Two was kind of on at the time, so it was patriotic and yes, sort of a, a political parallel in certain ways. Yeah, apparently, I don't know, not, who even remembers that movie? Okay. I was going to suggest that we should watch the movie that won Best Screenplay over Miracle at Morgan's Creek and Hail the Conquering Hero, but I don't think I, <laughs> I, I care to see that. Well, that's the way it is, right? Anyway, he lost to uh, Wilson that year with two chances. But, on the other hand, Hail the Conquering Hero, huge hit. Huge hit. People love it. People loved it. People, And I, I, I can kind of see why. And I guess the comedy that they had at the time was to the taste yeah. uh, of the time, to, to most people anyway. Uh, and then, so then, because those uh, films uh, were hits... They finally released the big moment. Now, what was going on at the same time is when, when Sturgis finally f uh, finished Hail the Conquering Hero, he was done with his contract and he at, at Paramount, and he's like, I don't want to be here anymore. I hate you so much. I absolutely do not want to be here. I do not want to be under contract. But because I love the great moment so much, I'm willing to come back for free and fix it after you guys screwed it up to re-edit it and everything. And they would not allow, allow him to come back, even though he said he'd do it for free. So he left and The Great Moment was released and it bombed big time. But he landed on his feet, so his next gig that he had set up was with Howard Hughes. Now, this is sad because Sturgis was, he was like one of those guys who's like, oh, I get along with him, he's my buddy, who don't, pay attention to anything. Now he ran his mother's business successfully, but by the time he'd gotten here, he didn't want he didn't want anything to do with money. He didn't want to think about it. He just wanted to spend. He just wanted to in a way like Rudolph Valentino did. Right. But yeah, you know, I just kinda of want to live the life and spend the money. I don't want to hear about it. And that's what he was doing. And he was just spending, 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 so he needed even more money. And Howard Hughes, who was a super rich guy, was also in the movie industry. He ended up buying the RKO uh, studio, of ultimately. He and, and Sturgis got together and said, hey, let's create a studio together. I'm busy with the war effort. I'm creating airplanes for the Navy, I mean, for the, well, for the Air Force. I'm busy 
you go ahead and make your movies. And of course, it's all being bankrolled by Howard Hughes, by his money. So he says, okay, go ahead, make the movies you want to make. We'll call it Cal Picks, because California Pictures, Cal okay. Picks. And he gets to own 49%. So he's like, oh yeah, so it's going to have 49% of the profits. But of course, at 51%, the person who has total control over the whole thing is Howard Hughes. So Sturgis started making his next movie called The Sin of Harold Diddlebach, which did end up coming up out in 1947, but we're in, we're in 1944 now. And now that he had total authority and total control and nobody was watching over him and he wasn't being held to the schedule, he had no discipline whatsoever because he had been undisciplined generally at the studio anyway in terms of the atmosphere, the carnival-like atmosphere of, right. his, of his sets. But now he had absolutely no discipline whatsoever and the filming just went on and on and he had things redone and he had things built and he's kind of like well Howard Hughes is paying for it go ahead I don't like that set knock it down and build me another set and he just he became like this this like he did with with his restaurant that he still had going at the same time he still uh -huh. had the restaurant and the machine shop going uh he would like keep oh you know that arch isn't quite right tear it out and and make it a little rounder that kind of thing. Now repaint that over there and make it, you know, give the filigree a little more finesse. It's, he started doing that on the movie and it just went on and on and on. He had written the script and he was a big fan of Harold Lloyd. And Harold Lloyd was a silent film comedian right up there with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. He's not as remembered today at all. No, he's a sort of He's fresh-faced. He's pretty handsome, actually, and he's taller than both Buster Keaton mm -hmm. and Charlie Chaplin. He wears glasses, dark hair. His overall persona is kind of guileless, sometimes kind of a, a country hick or like a starry-eyed guy that's very sincere and very hapless and keeps getting into these situations and then doing lots of physical comedy, lots of stunts. Even to the point where, and I've, we've mentioned this in prior podcasts, I believe, where he had one time in, during the silent period, he's doing a publicity tour and he's holding a so-called bomb, you know, one of those fake bombs. Well, it actually had a load in it and it went off and it blew off a forefinger and thumb on one of his hands. Yet he continued on to do some of his greatest films. He just had a glove built that he wore when he was filming and you, you can kind of tell if you're really looking for it, but otherwise you'd never notice that he's like holding on to these things and cl climbing things and hang on to ledges with this glove on, uh, missing those two fingers. So anyway, that was Harold Lloyd. Man, that sucks. <laughs> I know, really. Once the silent period was over, he he kind of stepped away. He kind of, he produced films and so forth, but he wasn't pursuing a career as a, as a performer anymore. And there was a, a really delightful film. I enjoyed it, The Freshman, that Harold Lloyd did in uh, the 20s. Did you like it? I did. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So The Freshman, I think, is one of his more iconic movies. Yeah. And The Freshman, of course, he's a college freshman. So he plays this boy who, again, likes kind of starry-eyed, super innocent. He's so excited to go to college. He goes to a movie in his hometown about a guy in college who's, like, popular and, like, learns this, like, silly little jig that you do and then you shake someone's hand. He picks up all these mannerisms from it and he's like, oh, I'm going to be the most successful boy in college. I'm going to be so popular. Um, I'm it's, a kind of e it's a kind of eagerness and naivete that you go, 
okay, we know what's going to happen here. Yeah. So he shows up. They take him for a rube. They make him pay for everything. They make fun of him. He thinks they're laughing with him. They're laughing at him. He does silly speech, becomes very notorious. And it's also got uh, that the class thing in it that is common in Hollywood, but that Sturgis gravitated to in that he lives in a boarding house where the, the poor but honest proprietors of this boarding house have a beautiful daughter, and she's pure of heart, and he loves her, and she loves him, and yet he is trying to make it in with the crowd, the, the college crowd. And in those days, they did not have any kind of scholarships or federal loans they didn't have any kind of any kind of uh, support for tuition so it's really only uh people who were wealthy who went to college plus you know you didn't work while you were in college at that time it was not very unusual most working class people you got out of school at 16 or whatever you were expected to go into the workforce you had to so he's trying to be accepted by the upper crust by the in crowd yet there's this poor but honest people who just accept him for who he is. And so ultimately he ends up joining the football team, and he's supposed to just be some extra there to fill the bench. He's their water boy, even though he doesn't know it. Ultimately, of course, he ends up coming in and heroically saving the day at the big game. And that's the end of the film. And so what uh, Preston Sturgis, um, his, his conceit is... He, he's going to take that ending and he's going to look at this guy with this supposedly bright future and 20, well, actually it was more than 20 years on, but 25, I think it was supposed to be 20 in the movie, although he looked a lot older. Anyway, 20 years on and, and he got hired with all this promise and now we see him today and he's still working at the same job as a lowly clerk in the advertising company, something like that. And, yeah. and so it's kind of depressing, like it's a depressing premise because this, the movie The Freshman is so charming and hopeful and triumphant at the end. And so this movie, it's, it's a very dark take where it opens, yeah, and he's older, he's fallen in love with this succession of women but never married anyone. Well, and they're all sisters. So each one, each sister going down the row, he falls in love with and wants to propose, but he can't because he doesn't have any money. So he finally hits the last one. And this last one is played by um, Sturgis's girlfriend at the time. Sturgis was still married to his third wife because he married four times to his third wife. So he uh, took up with this sort of model named Frances Ramsden. And again, it's the pattern. He courts her. He pays all the attention to her. She's the true love of his life. And, of course, now he's got this wife, and he's happy to stay married to her, and she's supposed to stay at home and sit there and wait for him. And when he comes home, she's supposed to be there and to do everything he wants her to do and give parties. What she was doing, she married. She stayed married to him for 10 years, and I guess it was absolute hell. And so now, and she knew that he was sleeping around, and they did not have an open marriage, to her mind. You know, never been agreed to. And so she put up with that. But then when he took up with Francis Ramsden, he's going out to parties and to uh, events and premieres and with her on his arm, he's just flaunting it everywhere that this is his, his mistress. And so she finally decided that was the final straw. So she ended up divorcing him during this period. And he was wanting to push Francis Ramsden as an actor and the studio signed her, and they wanted to push her, so she she was featured in this film. She's pretty, but that's about it. And the part that he wrote for her was absolutely horrible. I don't know if you you would have been blackout drunk by the end of the movie if you had taken a drink every time she said, Mr. Diddlebach, 
Oh, Mr. Diddlebach. Yes, Mr. Diddlebach. No, Mr. Diddlebach. I mean, she said it so many times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was just, it's, it's awful. Yeah. I kind of like her vibe and her attitude, the actress. Yeah. Um, she's she's kind of a cool girl and stuff, but the part that she's playing is very much like a, oh, I know you and I love you. And like, and even, like, even I'm though so I'm 25 years younger than you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is, of course, Sturgis playing out his own fears because as he got older, you know, he drank a lot and it was st- really starting to show. So he even looked older than he was and he was middle-aged and he was so frightened of his la- his uh, waning attractiveness. And he became even more um, intense and jealous and so forth of, around his women partners because he felt that he was losing his attractiveness. And so this film kind of plays it out because this guy, he, now he's he's supposed to be 40, but he, he definitely looks 50. like 50. Harold Lloyd does. Yeah. yeah, Harold Lloyd. I mean, an attractive 50, but 50. And... Um, here's this young woman, maybe 20, 25, who just is in love with him, Un- unquestioningly in love with him. So he's kind of playing that out, which is kind of kind of sad, and you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough because Harold Lloyd, like, he's good, and it's really interesting to see him in a, in a talkie. He keeps it lively. There is some snappy dialogue. There's a, a quite a funny scene, like, yeah. Again, this seems to be the trend near um, Sturgis's like later movies where I'm really intrigued actually at the beginning or pretty intrigued. It seems promising. <laughs> There's a very funny scene where basically Harold Lloyd's character, he quits his job in a fit of peak and he goes out and he has some money and he goes into a bar for like the first time ever. The, the bartender and one of the regulars basically get him super soused. The whole scene is quite funny. And Sturgis really seems to like this trope in that in Morgan's Creek, the woman, uh, she gets blackout drunk, gets married, doesn't remember anything. And then here, Harold Lloyd, he gets blackout drunk. We do see what he's doing, but then he doesn't remember. And he has amnesia about all the behavior that he has indulged in, but actually ends up being, it's kind of crazy and wild, kind of successful, kind of not, gets him into trouble. He, he wins a bunch of bets on the horse racing becomes track. Becomes super rich. Becomes super rich. And then he wakes up the next day and realizes that he's bought an entire circus. Right. With all the animals. Right. And so then he's going to try to figure out how to get rid of this circus uh, in a profitable way. And he's trying to help people at the same time. If you're a Harold Lloyd completist, you really like Harold Lloyd, it's good to see if you're... In the beginning, in the first half, there is some snappy dialogue. In the second half, it really goes downhill. Yeah, it just kind of unravels. But, and this is mostly a con for the movie, but you do get to see Harold Lloyd acting with a real live lion. Yeah, which he didn't like. Yeah. He was really mad. The lion went after him at one point, kind of tried to bite him or claw him, and he says, I'm not doing that anymore. So that was a problem. There was not a lot of actor safety uh, going on there. Uh, But he is holding this lion by this chain. I'm like, okay. You know, okay, you had your hand blown off. Uh, what else? Uh, you're going to lose an arm now. Uh, so that was interesting. Um, and to see Sturgis's girlfriend. But mostly, this is just a nightmare. It just went on and on. And it gets very heavy and kind of leaden. It's almost sort of like it's like a big lump of dough that isn't really leavened enough, you know? Yeah. And Harold Lloyd tried to tell him. He said, look, show, don't tell. If you want this kind of fu- you know funny, and so there's a lot of talking and a lot of exposition, where you could just have action, and 
Sturgis, just like when he was a young man on Broadway throughout his career, he knew better. He wasn't going to listen. And so Lloyd stayed loyal. He did his best. You know, they didn't get into conflict, but uh, he really wasn't happy by the end of the filming. Uh, Sturgis just really hadn't been good at all. And Francis Ramsden, somewhere around this time, his wife was divorcing him. He wanted to marry her, and she decided not to marry him. So that didn't go through. She was smart. Good. She was really smart. And, um, yeah, so anyway, they tried to tell him it's getting too slow. He wasn't listening. It goes on and on and on in terms of the filming. And some things came out here that showed that he wasn't really the nicest guy. We've talked about this before. He had a lot of his stock company. Those are, those, those are contract players who you could contract to be in the background, play small parts, so forth, like Franklin Pangborn and Billy Conlon. They were in like all his other movies that he wrote and directed. He wanted to get William Demarest. He really felt William Demarest was a good luck charm. And, but Demarest had just, you know, was moving up a little bit and he signed a, a contract with Paramount where basically he was under their exclusive contract to them. And so uh, Calpix tried to borrow him because they would loan out actors under contract and charge a fee for it and you would go over and, and work in that film. And because uh, Sturgis had left with such ill grace from the studio and he and his um, producer were at such odds, they refused to loan Demarest out to him. So Demarest could only work for him if he broke his contract. And why would he do that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so what what Sturgis said was, oh, well, I know what you can do. Because, you know, it's sort of like a superstition. You're my good luck charm. You're one of my good luck charms. I'm going to have you, you can be in the lion suit. You'll be in a lion suit and you'll just like do one scene and nobody will know. You'll just be, be on the set and you'll do this lion, this part of this lion. And so what Demer says, he said, was, well, I don't know. I'll think about it or something like that. And Sturgis just decided that was a yes because that's what he wanted. And so instead of not telling anybody, he tells a reporter and it's in the papers. And so Demer says he just couldn't help himself. And so he says, well, I'm not doing it, you know. And it made, it made Sturgis so angry. And this just shows what a jerk he could be. Uh, so when A Miracle came out, he put an ad in the newspaper saying how great this film was and to thank thanking everybody after he left. Like, oh, and then he went through the whole cast and said something really nice about them and what part they played. And for The Miracle on, on, uh, in Morgan Creek, he said, you know, William Demarest, magnificent as Constable Clockenlocker now has to be borrowed like a big star. The hell with him. Rude. What a jerk. And then he did another ad for Hail the Conquering Hero. I almost feel like these ads, the real point wasn't the movie. It was to get back at William Demers as a way that he could do it. So he did another ad when Hail came out, and he says about Demerst, once again magnificent, this time as Sergeant Heffelfinger, now under contract to Paramount. So long, Bill. So after that, they never spoke again, as you can imagine. Yeah. So basically, what happened is, is they were still filming, and the budget for this came to, like, over $600,000. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. It came in $600,000 over budget. Wow. So this is a couple million dollars. And when you look at the film, believe me, it does not look like a couple million dollars at that time. And it was 52 days over schedule. So, like, well over two months, about two months over schedule. And so Hughes 
hadn't been paying attention. So now the war's winding down and he turns his eye to the studio and he starts looking at what's going on and he was mad. Oh my gosh, he was so mad. And so what, what he ended up doing is he ultimately, he just forced Sturgis out of the company. And the thing is, is that he Sturgis didn't pay attention. He didn't have a lawyer look at this. And so basically, Hughes basically could buy him out for like $10 or something. Oh my God. I mean, he still was entitled to some profits if there were any. Mm-hmm. But for his equity in the company, I think he basically bought him out and took over the company is what Hughes did. Wow. Now, so the company owned the picture, so he owned the picture. So Howard Hughes edited the film. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he edited the picture. He trimmed 19 minutes of it. He added a talking horse. He filmed a talking horse and added it to the film. <laughs> and then he held on to it for two years and then finally released it in 1947. Really bad. So the film has been re-edited because there's no talking horse in it anymore. Right, okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah. So it went it went back to what it was supposed to be, which is still not that great. So now he, Sturgis is, he's really going downhill financially because of the players, which is his restaurant. Again, he's pouring more and more money into it. His employees are stealing from him. He's not making a lot of money, and he's just spending ridiculous amounts of money on it. And so now he's got to get another job. Well, based on his earlier hits, he ended up signing with Daryl Zanuck uh, for $7,825 a week for 30 weeks. So he's making even more money. How does he keep doing that? He's I know. Like failing upwards. <laughs> I know exactly. It's it's really amazing, and he really believed that uh, Zanuck's promises that he would have autonomy. And now Zanuck is well known to be one of those micromanagers. I mean, he was mm. he because those were his movies and so forth. I mean, you know, Zanuck did do some really amazing stuff. Zanuck's new star is Betty Grable. Now, Betty Grable was a very very famous pinup actress. I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of her, but her legs, there, there's a big, it was really mostly a, a publicity stunt, but her legs were insured with Lloyd's of London for a million dollars because she had the legs and she was, uh, you know, she was just the prime, even ahead of Rita Hayworth, pinup girl of the 1940s during the war. So now the war's ending and she's done a lot of musical comedies and dancing and they want her to get more into acting. That's what Zanuck wanted him to do, was to do this movie for Betty Grable. And Sturgis was like, oh, but there's this other movie I want to do. And so Zanuck agreed to let him postpone the Betty Grable movie and make Unfaithfully Yours first. And again, this was an older film, and it was an idea that Sturgis had about how music affects one's emotions and how how you're in a movie and it's got twinkly music and how it'll just change the affect of the scene or whatever you're watching. And this film really reflects his own insecurities, his obsession, his jealousy, and his violent nature. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's really psychologically revealing in a way that, at, again, at the beginning, I felt was like really promising and really yeah. interesting. And then ultimately it kind of unravels and it's more self-obsessed and not very sharp. But it is... The main guy is a conductor. He conducts orchestras, and he's world famous, and he has this beautiful wife. and um, Played by Linda Darnell. Played by Linda Darnell. And Rex Harrison. He's very tall and English. Handsome. Yeah. Yeah. And But older, definitely middle-aged. Right. He played uh, uh, Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, FYI. If you've ever seen him before, that's probably where you've seen him. 
also played Dr. Doolittle in the first movie adaptation. And so basically what happens is he, he becomes, he, you know, he trusts his wife implicitly, but then through these like circumstances and miscommunications, he becomes convinced that she's cheating on him. And most of the movie takes place over the course of a symphony that he's conducting. And he goes into these various fantasies about what he's going to do about it. Based on the, the music. So there's the very uh, intense, violent music that he starts with. So then he's, he's got this whole plan to murder her and frame the boyfriend for the murder. And then there's some dulcet Andante music where, oh, he's all forgiving. And he's going to let her go and write her a check so she can be free. And so he has these various scenarios that play out for us. And they're playing out in his mind while he's conducting. And that's the part that I felt was like very yeah. interesting until it started to drag on. The music from the symphony plays under the scene the whole time. Right. Actually, the one where he murders his wife is kind of a clever, interesting little murder that he conjures up. But it is. There's kind of a nastiness there. Um, well, the, I think where the nastiness lies in the fact that is in the fact that the way Harrison treats Darnell in real life during the film, where in between the sets, not not in his fantasy, but in between he's really brutally, violently nasty, and she has to play this part where she's just takes it. Yeah, she's like, what's going on? Yeah, I love you, and oh, and then she's trying to make it okay, and then, then she does get a little bit angry, but then in the end, he he tries to do all the, he tries to um, live out all of these fantasies, and they, they fall apart, and that's supposed to be the comedy, and that, you know, his murder plot it ends up being ridiculous, and he falls down, and he has all these pratfalls, and but in the end, it's just sort of like she just accepts him back and everything's okay. Yeah, and she was and, oh, never unfaithful, of yeah, course. Right. Yeah, right. And you're handsome and I love you. And so it's it's him it's him playing out his whole psychodrama right there on the screen. And it's that, that personal nastiness that kind of, that undermines what, what actually has a lot of promise and, and is pretty entertaining. Yeah. And so uh, essentially um, at this time, talk about playing this out, Sturgis' wife divorced him and... His girlfriend, Frances Ramsden, from Harold Diddlebach, she leaves. And he ends up, uh, one day while he's working at the Players, is this young, God, this young woman, she's like 20, in her early 20s. She's like 25 years younger than he is. She comes in, and she's Sandy, and she ends up uh, working there. And then it's kind of almost like grooming. This is what sounds weird. And then, and then he says, oh, I need somebody to write down my scripts that I'm writing or type things up and so she oh, I can type and he says okay and then he gets her to do that and then he says well you know in order for you to be available whenever I need you to do the typing and everything you, you should come and live at my place don't worry no, no no funny business so she comes and she lives at his place and so step by step he pulls her in yeah and then you know so she marries him and she has a couple of kids with him and and she's married to him to the end of his life but his you know, you can see that there's this vast age difference, which is in the same as in Unfaithful Yours. And so he's playing out this. It seems like his relationships, they weren't about him loving somebody. They were about himself and his attractiveness and proving it. And but, being demonstrative and playing the role of telling himself that he's a great lover and stuff. Right, right, exactly. So uh, for the film, uh, Rex Harrison, he worked really, really hard. He couldn't read music. He was not a musician. So he worked for seven weeks with a trainer, conductor, to learn how to conduct. And he is very convincing. Mm -hmm. He really looks like he's conducting. He really looks like he knows what he's doing. And his trainer you know, was off camera helping to cue him 
about what he should do and everything. He it really looks good. I think his performance is quite good in this. Given what I he's, do. yeah, it's, it's, it's just unfortunate that the tone is got that raspy edge to it that that kind of undermines what could really be quite funny and delightful. This one, after the, the problems with Harold Diddlebach, did come in on schedule, under budget. So Daryl Zanuck was a-okay with that. And it looked like it was could be a hit. Unfortunately, um, Rex Harrison, in real life, he was married to an actress named Lily Palmer. And they've been married for quite a while. But, of course, he always, you, know, you have to have the piece on the side because he's not a man if you don't do that. So he was uh, having a love affair with an actress named Carol Landis, who was actually fairly well-known. And she's quite a bit younger. She's about 20 years younger than he was. I think she's 29. And uh, he refused to, he broke it off with her when she insisted that he leave his wife. He said, I'm not leaving my wife and I'm not going to marry you. And he he dumped her or she dumped, you know, and she kept calling and she was frantic and everything. And so she ended up committing suicide and leaving a suicide note, Oof, which was pretty harsh right before this movie was released. And it bombed because nobody wanted to see this. This guy, yeah, in a he, comedy. He was implicated, yeah, in her suicide and her suicide note, and yeah, it was a whole scandal. Well, it's so sad because Carol Landis. I mean, he was in a relationship with somebody who's very, very unstable. She was twenty nine, and she'd been married five times already. So anyway, and, and so that unfortunately ended up not being a hit. We can't really determine whether that had anything to do with Sturgis's movie or not. It probably would have done fine. He had a two picture deal with Xanax, so now it's time to do the Betty Grable movie. And so this movie ended up being called The Beautiful Blonde of Bashful Bend. <laughs> what an awful title. I know, it's terrible. And uh, he'd never made a color film before. All his films were in black and white. And he decided this had to be in Technicolor because Betty Grable's other pr- prior films had all been in Technicolor. So it, he felt it was like her brand. And it would go against the brand if he didn't make it Technicolor. And, and Zanuck is like... No, this can be in black and white because she's shifting. She's going to be an actress because she'd been in musicals. And these big blown musicals, they were in Technicolor. So Technicolor was kind of saved for the big epics like uh, Gone with the Wind or with things like big musicals. But he just insisted. He absolutely insisted that this had to be that way. So because he, he was not listening and not willing to compromise, he and Zanuck started more and more to have more conflict between them which was not good. But eventually Zanuck gave in and said, okay, you know, because he just really wanted to get this done and he thought it would be really good. And he also admired Sturgis as a director. And he says, okay, you know, I've got these other directors, these new directors coming up. I want you to mentor them. I, you know, can take them under your wing. And Sturgis says, no, let them learn the hard way the way I did. I'm not helping anybody. (laughs) They also came to conflict over the fact that Zanuck was viewing the rushes and he thought it was a little bit leaden. And he wanted... Sturgis like to pick up the pace a little on these on these scenes and kind of get that comedy going because this was still in the period where it was kind of rapid fire and he just didn't feel the comic timing was there. He's not wrong. No, he's not wrong. And uh, you know there were other revisions he wanted and Sturgis just wasn't going to do it. He's just going to do it his way and probably made him slower. Who knows? Things were not going well. And ultimately, what happened? He said something and I, I couldn't kind of get the details on this, but. Maybe it was that he compared her to Mae West, who was a real old hat and kind of elderly at the time. That Sturgis compared Betty Grable to yeah. Mae West? Yeah, yeah. He'd been getting along great with Betty Grable, or fine with her anyway. And then all of a sudden, one day she wouldn't talk to him. Hmm. And now, 
given Sturgis, I can't imagine that he was like ameliorating or like, hey, Betty, what's going on? I doubt that that happened. No. Things just got worse on set and there was a lot of conflict. So he started to get disinterested. He got moody and he would just sit there and he really wasn't putting anything into the movie. He just, I think he also probably was having a lot of trouble with alcohol. He was probably depressed. He wasn't having the success. And so he didn't have the strength of character to really kind of push through it, you know, try to, to make it work. And she was so angry with him that at the end of the shooting, usually, you know, you would say, hey, great working with you. You know, it was standard that you maybe had a party. The last day of shooting, he had cut. She just walked out and was gone. Wait, yeah. can you tell us why, if it was the comparison to Mae West, why that would have been kind of I offensive? don't know. I think Mae West is fine. But Mae West was 20 years older than she was and was kind of the sex pot. She was always considered lewd. And I, probably Betty Grable just didn't want that image. Mm-hmm. And probably she maybe she felt he was saying something about her age. So basically, um, Zanuck just, he had some of the scenes reshot by a different director and re-edited it, but it just didn't help. The movie totally flopped. And so now, now Sturgis is really not doing well. And so he's decided, well, what I, he really, really needed money. So what he decides is, I'm going to take what money I have left. And I mean, there are tax liens and uh, alimony and property divisions and stuff. He's not, he's not paying anything. He's pouring it all into the players. So he decides, I'm going to make the players into a theater. And it's going to be a, a dinner theater. And we're going to have this, and being the inventor, he creates this mechanism that can change scenery. And it's, you know, just really, hmm. you know, very, very uh, intricate. And he's going to put on these one-act plays that he wrote. And, and so he found out that maybe the one-act plays weren't the greatest idea, but he put on a comedy. And Eddie Bracken helped him out and said, okay, I'll, I'll play in your plays for nothing or for minimum scale or whatever, just minimum payment. Uh, so he did it for a while, and it was a hit. People came, they saw the plays, and basically he figured, I'll make money on drinks. That's the main thing I'm going to make money on. It's not on the plays, but on the drinks that people are drinking. So people came, it was successful in that way, but he was just trying to use a bucket on the Titanic. It's just there was no way with the, he, the way they were sinking financially he was going to be able to do it. Plus, his financial acumen was so low, was so poor, that he kept saying, well, if I just had had a longer amount of time, it would have pulled itself up. And I'm thinking, I don't believe you. Not the way you, you do business. He tried to get more jobs, and he was just drinking worse and worse and worse. So he ended up meeting the shyster from Europe who said, oh, I can get you a movie in, in England. So it's all financed, and we'll pay you all this money. And it'll be $100,000. Come on over. So he takes his family over to Europe, his wife and two children at this point, And they go to Paris, and the guy was just totally a shyster. I don't know why. I don't know what he got out of it. But anyway, there was no movie. There was no deal. He came up with about $1,000 out of all the money he'd promised him. So then he's trying to go all over. He tried to get into TV. When he was in Europe, he was going over trying to get film deals. And he did end up finally getting this one last film that he did uh, called The French, They Are a Funny Race. And it's based on a book written by a Frenchman, it was in French, so he, and he spoke French, that was basically just a bunch of essays of observations about the difference between the French and the English. And it's just one of those things where you kind of needed to be there. You needed to be English or French to get it. So he makes this film based on these essays, and it's apparently terrible. I, did, I just thought, after seeing the 
the beautiful blonde from Bashful Bend. It, I, I just didn't even want to see it. So we didn't see that one. So you can watch it if you if you really want to and let us know what you think. It bombed, obviously, and did not do well. He tried. He had some great ideas for TV. TV didn't pay a lot back then because it was in the 50s, early 50s. But he had some good ideas. He just didn't pursue it. He had had inventions. He didn't pursue those. He just didn't pursue things anymore. And then very sadly, he, he just passed away from complications of alcoholism mostly. So R.I.P. and he's you know, still 59 when he died. So he was not old, but he looked like he was 75. If you, look at the, if you go online and look at the pictures of him. So he had really you know, done himself in. Well, and that's a sad, that's sort of like ending on that great moment <laughs> movie. Well, okay, well, so, I, so what we're gonna say is the three top movies that we recommend you see are Lady Eve, the Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, mm-hmm. and we decided after you know thinking about it that Christmas in July, even though we do like the Palm Beach Story as a runner-up, Palm Beach Story, and I guess Bashful Blonde, <laughs> sorry, uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek would be my two runners-up in terms of interest. Okay, not that Miracle Creek is anywhere near quite as good as the other ones, but it's fresh and different. Yeah. It really gives you the sense of the times. Well, that's it for that life. Yeah, again, thanks for joining us for all of these very long series about very complicated people, and not always the best people, but definitely figures in history, really interesting at historical moments, sort of intersecting with each other's lives. And important artists. All right, guys, thanks for loving the movies. We love the movies, too. Bye-bye. See you next time. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Graham.